Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Janice, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, March 28, 2013. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are in the forward to the second edition on page XVI, and we will begin with a paragraph that says, Prior to his journey to Akron. The reference number for yesterday, which was Wednesday, March 27th, is 4165. That's 4165. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I would now like to ask Irini to please read the 12 steps. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, my spiritual brothers and sisters. My name is Irini, and I am a very grateful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I thank you. And I pass.
Thank you, Edini. I'd now like to ask Margaret H. to please read the tradition. Thank you. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, A Vision for You. This is Margaret, compulsive overeater in Illinois. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters of other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Margaret. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. And today we resume our study of the big book. We are in forward to the second um, edition, and we are on page XVI, and we will begin with the paragraph that reads, prior to his journey to Akron. And I would like to ask Penny C. to please start. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, everybody. This is Penny C. from Massachusetts, a recovered compulsive overeater. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help another alcoholic, but he had succeeded only in keeping sober himself. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, 
leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. That alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. I'm just thinking about how so often I've read I've read books and I just maybe just bypass the forward. I mean, I'm going to get to the meat of this this book, and I'm looking at this little this short paragraph and seeing all the lessons that are here. The broker worked with many alcoholics, and then all he could do was keep himself sober. So he didn't he didn't abandon the whole idea of 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 the Oxford group that he had the things he had learned in the Oxford group or his his wanting to help others. He kept going on and and then he comes to Akron and the business venture fails and I know for myself that's all it would have taken for me to have another binge. Had it not been for the fact that I was practicing the 12 steps and knew that the the primary primary purpose of our of my OA group was to carry the message and to be able to help another compulsive overeater and that's what he did and he's we know that we're going to hear more in the rest of the book that it wasn't easy to find that first alcoholic, that second alcoholic, actually, who turned out to be Dr. Bob. He had to really go, go to any length to find that person that he could help, knowing it would save himself, knowing it would save himself. And I love what, you know, Dr. Bob's story that we're going to come to, or we don't. It's actually the first story after the first 164 pages. And Dr. Bob tells us, that the reason he does service, the reason he reaches out to other people, is that one of the reasons is that it's insurance policy against his own having a possible slip. So this this little short paragraph, almost hidden away in a forward to the book, for me presents many, many, many lessons, and and I'm glad that we take this part of the book as seriously as we do and examine it paragraph for paragraph. With that, I pass. Thank you, Penny. Would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? This is Paula. May I share? Go this ahead, Paula. And then Robin. Thank you. This would be Paula, Recovered Compulsive Reader. You know, I'm going to scoot on to that last line. He suddenly suddenly, all at once, that's what suddenly means, realized, and what does realized mean, the realization to impress on the mind, there it is, that in order to save himself, and I love that word, there is a sense of order here, where there was just chaos and disarray in my mind, a sense of order, to save himself, he must, no choice here, choice taken away here, if he was to keep what he had, he must give it away. He must carry his message to another alcoholic. The alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician, and that turned out to be the spark that was to flare into the first OAA group. Thank you for allowing me to share, and with that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Go ahead, Robin. 
this is Rabbit and a compulsive overeater recovered in Minnesota. Um, he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. Right away here in in the preface, we haven't even or the forward, we haven't even gotten into the meat of the of the book yet. Right away, we're told um, how important it is to forge connections. That without forging connections, this isn't going to work for me. There's a good chance that um, I will go back to whatever my substance is, and mine, of course, happens to be food because I'm sitting on this line. But um, he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. This is not a self-help program that we're working here. I, um, For me and myself, I spent maybe 30 years looking for self-help groups and thinking that I could do this on my own. Um, sitting, you know, there were no phone meetings back when I was doing this, you know, in the beginning. But being invisible, you know, if if I had found this phone meeting way back before I was ready, before I was surrendered, I would have sat in this phone line and been invisible um, because I didn't want to forge connections. I wanted to protect my food. I wanted to protect my secrets. I wanted to protect... Um, my anonymity, and so I would lurk. You know, I would I would listen, and I would learn by listening, but not take the action. And uh, you know, I'm told right away in in this very beginning preface that this program is about forging connections with other people, and um, that's the only way that I'm going to be able to uh, find any kind of success in this program is if I invite other people into my life, um, allow them to teach me about the truth, about my disease, about my character defects. And, of course, he wasn't thinking this in the beginning, on this very first day when he realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message. For for Bill W., he did this because, um, you know, he was in fear of losing his sobriety. And uh, so... What he did was he took the personal responsibility of finding another alcoholic to work with. Thank you, I'll pass. Thank you, Robin. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. So what had been happening to Bill? This, is, this paragraph has so much history in it, very succinctly told to us. You know, prior to his journey to Akron, on this business trip that he went on. The broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he had succeeded only in keeping sober himself. And why was that? Why was that? Well, as we, as we begin to find out, Bill W. was hauling drunks off of bar stools and telling them all about how he had found God, how he had found God, and he wasn't drinking anymore. And that whole idea was not very appealing to the alcoholics that he thought he could help. Now, Bill had had an incredibly moving spiritual experience himself, and he knew that this was the answer for him. But what he had not yet learned to do was to talk about the grave nature, which he had learned about from Dr. Silkworth. Dr. Silkworth who had been working with alcoholics, knew about the grave nature of alcoholism, knew that there seemed to be an allergy of the body as well as an obsession of the mind at work here. 
and he had been sharing with Bill W. that maybe you ought to hit them hard with that knowledge first. Maybe you ought to tell them about the physical allergy, how that works with you, and then how this transformation has taken place in you. Maybe you ought to hit them hard with that information first. Because as yet, Bill W. was working as hard as he knew how to with other alcoholics, but succeeding only in staying sober himself. And he actually had a conversation with Lois about that, where he said, oh, I just don't know if I can do this anymore because I'm the only one that, 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 you know, I can't get these guys to listen to me. And Lois had reassured him, and she said, at least you are staying sober yourself. And she encouraged him to keep trying because she saw something happening to her husband that she had never seen happen before. So we're going to find out as we keep on reading. Hold on to your hats because as we keep on reading the doctor's opinion and Bill's story, we're going to see how this played itself out. But this preface gives us that information that he knew in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. And how he's carrying that message is going to be of great interest to me and I hope to you. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Melanie? Good morning, it's Leah. Uh, go ahead, Melanie, and then Leah. Thank you, Janice. I'm Melanie here, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Oregon. And I look at this um, as a culmination of something that, that, like the apex of something that happened. I see an approach in the beginning of um, being sober, had some information Bill did, and he was out. He was out busy. You know, he was evangelizing, going to pull these people and in and tell them how that all went. And I, I see that kind of as, as ego in there a bit. And then the result of that, which was a good thing, he stayed sober himself for sure. But what happened? There's been this shift, this 180-degree shift. Something in his life collapsed, absolutely collapsed. And how many times have I been at that place and he had a choice? Am I going to pick up or am I going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. But there, I think it seems like to me that there was some sort of a, a, a spiritual shift, this, this, um, this, this desperate idea that I need, I need help. I need help. Instead of me going out with my ego and helping other people and, and jamming this down the throat, I need help. I'm in terrible trouble here. This is a serious, serious thing. And, and the only thing that I know to do is I've got to tell somebody, tell somebody else. And I just feel this desperateness in here. But most importantly, the, the, the apex of this, this shift, this, this shift with humility involved here that gave him the opportunity. And all these things lined up, as they always do in my life, things are lining up to this point where I can get to humility that I need another person. I need another person. And it just happened to turn out to be um, Dr. Bob. And, of course, the story clearly beautifully develops from there. But that's the piece that I wanted to offer here. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Melanie. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks so much, Janice. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. So much here in this paragraph. Uh, prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he had succeeded only in keeping 
sober himself. Um, see the elements of sponsorship in here where uh, that identification is so uh, vital to the newcomer because we have been in the quicksand and uh, can share from that experience. This is not just about intellect or self-knowledge. This is that we've been in that hell and yet we've been rescued out of it. Um, but he had succeeded only in keeping sober himself. Another good thing to know about sponsorship in that, you know, some will, some won't, and so what? You know, some will recover, some won't recover, so what if it keeps you sober? Um, it's about self-preservation. Yes, it's an obligation. Yes, it's a responsibility. And yes, it's absolute sheer pleasure to carry the message, but the bottom line is that it is self-preservation. It says the broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. This line reminds me of the greater aspect of my disease, which is in my mind. Bill... Bill's business venture had collapsed. He was perhaps feeling a bit sad, a bit low, and depressed. Uh, We know it as restless, irritable, and discontent. Bill is sober here. He is sober. But the insanity is thinking that, uh, you know, that first drink is the best idea we've had all day. But he realizes that. Um, Again, the broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He has respect and awe for his disease. He understands what is going on here. He's sober, but the greater aspect of his disease resides between his two ears. So he suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. Bill, (laughs) Bill is in pursuit. It took him 10 calls to find Dr. Bob. I mean, he had tremendous tenacity and desire to remain sober, and Bill didn't really go over to Dr. Bob to sober up Dr. Bob. Bill Wilson went over there to keep Bill Wilson from getting drunk because he remembered that back in New York City, all those men that he pulled off from the bar stools and all those people that he helped get out of the gutter every time he had tried to help another alcoholic, even though he had helped no one, He himself had felt better. So that's why he had gotten hold of Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from getting drunk. And it's that strenuous work, one alcoholic to another alcoholic, which is so vital to permanent recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we move on? This is Judith. Go ahead, Judith. Judith, compulsive reader in Vermont. It's hitting me that Bill has already had his stupendous mountaintop experience by now, and yet the disease is still calling his name, and um, he has to take he has to take the next step of finding someone else to work with. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Judith. And we'll move on to the next paragraph. And Esther, would you read that for us? Good morning. My name is Esther, and I'm a compulsive overeater in Canada. I'm sorry for interrupting. Can I ask you which page you're reading on? Yes, we are on page XVI in the forward to the second edition at the bottom of that page. Go ahead, Esther. Sure. This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means 
to resolve his alcoholic dilemma but had failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. So again, good morning. My name is Esther, compulsive overeater in Canada. And this um, paragraph reminds me that it's in working with others. Um, I mean, once we come into the program of recovery, you know, we're meant to do the steps at a, at a steady pace so that we can recover. But that the, you know, onwards from there, the work is in taking people through the steps. And that's, and it says here that it's vital to permanent recovery. So vital teaches me that it's essential. Without without this, which is strenuous work, you know, one alcoholic with another, that I won't be able to achieve the permanent recovery that I, you know, that I that I want. And my own experience is that even in meetings such as these, which are, you know, generally, um, you know, populated by by qu- quite a number of recovered compulsive overeaters, where every day we sit and learn, you know paragraphs in this book and there's much to learn from others and you know new insights gained it really for myself i found that the transfer you know the transformation and the ongoing um spiritual uh growth is really from carrying the message one compulsive overeater to another meaning i could sit and be plugged into meetings even such as this one all day and it's not going to do for me what uh, strenuous work with other compulsive overeaters will do, and this is something that was a new insight to to Bill. I mean, he knew already that he could help other alcoholics because he himself was alcoholic. But this, that helping another alcoholic was going to help him remain sober, is something that he realized at this point. And we're going to see, you know, in the following paragraph where they frantically, you know set about to help others, realizing, and, you know, Dr. Barr realized, hey, this is what I've got, and if I want to keep it, I better turn around now and, you know, pass it on, because otherwise I'm not even going to keep what I have, forget about helping others. And what's nice for me also about this idea of strenuous work being vital to my recovery, then I don't need to um, control the outcome of of the you know of those that I help I'll, as long as I know that helping others is going to be the key for me for permanent recovery I could just you know do my part and whether or not the others recover is not you know in my control it's not my business it's not I don't have to worry about it or um agonize over it I mean certainly I it's always a joy to see others you know see the light and and recover but it just means that for me I just have to do my part I uh I don't have to um, you know, control outcomes of the people that I work with. I just know that when I, you know, carry the message, then that is what I need to do in order to maintain my recovery. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Esther. Would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? This is Kim. Go ahead, Miss Kim. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. The physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but failed. 
when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. You know, when Bill came in there and he was talking to Bob about the disease, and when finally Bob was like, oh my God, you understand what, you, you're, you understand what I'm going through. You understand what's going on. Tell me, how do I get the solution? Tell me what I have to do. Because he felt how hopeless he was. He understood the depth of his disease. Bill was shocked to find out that Bob was in the Oxford group. Bob had been exposed to the plan of action. Bob had been exposed that he needed a guide. But until he understood his disease, until he understood with depth and weight the fact that he had this twofold disease, he couldn't muster. He couldn't muster the willingness he needed to do. So we need to reflect on this. I know for myself, I had to look at how am I approaching newcomers? How are our newcomers' meetings even set up? You know, I know in my meetings when I have a newcomer's format, it's often, let's explain to them about the, uh, the inventory. Let's tell them how they have to make amends. Let's tell them they have to stop doing all their character defects. And the newcomers are like, whoa, 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 I just need a diet. I just need to lose some weight. What are you talking about? So what worked here is that Bill told them about the disease. Bill told them, well, let me ask you, let me ask you some questions. Let's talk about what a compulsive reader is. Let's see what the allergy of the body. Do you, do you identify in with that? Let's talk about the obsession of the mind. Do you identify in with that? Have you been on a lot of diets? And even when you get that food down for a certain amount of time, is your mind telling you it's not so bad, you can just have one? And when you try to just have one, when you try to control your eating, can you enjoy it? And when you are enjoying your eating, can you control it? And so many people say, well, I'm just an emotional eater. I'm just an emotional eater. And the fact is, if you truly are an emotional eater, you don't need a way. Because all you have to do is, is moderate your emotions and you should be fine. So the twofold disease is where Bill pounded into Bob. And when Bob felt hopeless, when Bob felt like he had no other place, when he was cornered at last, that is when he was open. So that type of understanding, I'm going to read on page 18 on the squiggly writing, because what I just described is the process which we can affect a newcomer. It says, but the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, who is properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive reader. I I am reminded, you know, that Dr. Bob had had his own experience prior to being approached by Bill W. You know, and and yes, he had been suffering from alcoholism for years and years and years and and was desperate to recover, was desperate to change what he did not seem to be able to change. You know, and he had, and, and on page 178 in Dr. Bob's 
story, Dr. Bob's Nightmare, he talks about that, about having been approached and found that, that spiritual aspect that he was trying to work on. He says, I sensed that they had something I did not have from which I might readily profit. I learned that it was something of a spiritual nature which did not appeal to me very much, but I thought it could do no harm. I gave the matter much time and study for the next two and a half years, but I still got tight every night nevertheless. You know, so it wasn't that that turned the tide for him. It was the fact that Bill W. sat with him, properly armed with the facts about himself, and described the true nature of this disease. Talked about the allergy of the body. Talked about how it affected him. Talked about how he picked up over and over and over again, even when he was sober, even when he put the drink down, somehow, some way, his mind would tell him that that first drink was going to be different this time and he would pick up again. And he talked about what that thinking was like for him and he talked about how it had unfolded for him like that over and over and over again. And I don't know about you, but I can imagine these two men nodding at each other, relating to each other, saying, yeah, that's what it's like for me too. Yeah, that's what it's like for me too. Because that's what it means to me that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. Because I don't know about you, but I had tried lots of ways. And I had talked to lots of people in lots of areas of expertise but none of them could relate could I relate to the way I could relate to another compulsive overeater who had found the way out. Someone whose experience I could identify with. Someone who could say to me, This is what it was like for me. And I could say, Yeah, me too. Me too. And then when the program of recovery was laid out in front of me and this person said, This is what had worked for her. I could say, oh my God, perhaps it'll work for me. You know, that's that's how we relate to one another. That's how we are properly armed with the facts about ourselves. That we can relate to one another like no non-compulsive overeater can. And I know today that in order to carry this message, that that's what happened to me, that that it would be vital to my permanent recovery that it would be vital that one day at a time I continue to carry this message, that I have been where you're at, that I have been in the gutter, that I have been hopeless, helpless, defenseless against that first bite, but that there is hope. And when I heard that message, I could grab hold, and I hope that it can be true for you as well. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? It's Leah. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks so much. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly uh, feel, you know, such gratitude when we revisit this history uh, just because it was laid out in such, uh, you know, divine 
uh, intervention here. Um, you know, it was right before, just before leaving for Akron, that Dr. Silkworth had given Bill W. this piece of advice. Because uh, without this piece of advice, without that conversation between Dr. Silkworth and Bill Wilson, AA might never have been born. You know, essentially, uh, Dr. Silkworth spoke to Bill and said, you know, Bill, you're having nothing but failure in in speaking to alcoholics because you're preaching at these alcoholics. You're talking to them about these Oxford concepts. You're talking to them about being absolutely honest and absolutely pure and absolutely loving. I mean, meanwhile, you know, they're sitting on the bar stool or drooling, uh, you know, in the gutter, and it's too big of an order. It's too big of an order for these alcoholics. And then, of course, Bill would top it off by telling him about this white flash spiritual experience that he had. And Dr. Silkworth said, you know, to Bill, basically, no wonder, you know, they point their finger to their heads and, and go out and get drunk because that seems like too tall an order. Too tall an order. And so Dr. Silkworth said to Bill W., you know, why don't you turn your strategy the other way around? Tell them about the def- about the hopelessness of their illness. Tell them about the medical business and give it to them hard. Tell them about the obsession that condemns them to drink and tell them about the physical allergy, that sensitivity of the body that condemns them to continue to drink and deflate their egos. Because coming from one alcoholic to another alcoholic, maybe that will crack those tough egos deep down. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what continues to happen when one compulsive overeater speaks to another compulsive overeater. We don't talk about some theatrical, um, you know, production that's been fabricated for your entertainment. You know, one compulsive overeater talks about what it was like in the quicksand to those who are still suffering. And more than that, that recovered compulsive overeater then says how they were rescued from that quicksand. And that's exactly the way the big book is laid out. The big book starts with the doctor's opinion, which teaches about the allergy of the body. The big book then goes into the Bill story, which is, uh, you know, a very detailed account of Bill's descent into the madness of alcoholism and the progression of the disease. And then, of course, it starts to make its way into teaching about the greater aspect of the disease, which is in the mind. And with all that teaching, you begin to be able to smash the delusion in, either in, in the suffering person that uh, they're going to be able to conquer this obsession of the mind on their own. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph before we move on? Rose. Go ahead, Rose. Thank you, Janice. This is Rose, a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, this this paragraph really, really hits home for me and moves me um, so much, like every sentence in it, um, from my own personal experience. Um, what was said earlier here, um, about newcomer OA meetings in that um, if the approach were to be a teaching 
of the allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. I was thinking of that as uh, Kim was talking about it and what what Leah just said also. Um, I had an experience myself um, when I came into uh, OA, and um, I recognized that um, the addiction, I mean, it was... Uh, that came through to me, but I, I for whatever reasons, um, did not study this book, and I did not learn that not only did I have an allergy, which I knew if I put one piece of a substance in me, I was down the road. Um, I didn't know about the obsession of the mind. I didn't read Dr. Silkworth. I hadn't read this book on my own or with anybody. Those were the circumstances. And then for the next uh, 38 and a half years, I lived in hell as a unrecovered, um, lying, active, compulsive overeater, um, managing, controlling weight, but in hell, essentially. There's no other description of it. Um, and the, one of the highlights of that hell was, as I'm in a New York City emergency room and the doctor's saying, why did you try to kill yourself? I took 90 sleeping pills. I looked back at this doctor and knew there was no way I could say to him I couldn't stop eating chocolate. I mean, I felt they would have locked me up forever rather than a two-week period of observation. So... Um, this sentence, uh, this seems to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. Um, and all that was came before that, you know, Leah shared and everyone else shared. Um, I had super philosophical convictions. I mean, truly. Um, it didn't include the absolutes, that's for sure, in my lifestyle, but it included, you know, uh, being good to other people or doing good. It included all of the philosophical convictions. Um, with all the resources I had at my command, uh, college degree or life experiences, without the knowledge of the mental obsession of my disease of compulsive overeating, I failed up until last year. I met a woman who had what I wanted, and I asked for help, which meant that I had hit bottom after 38 and a half years of failure. I had hit bottom. I finally said, I'm going to die with this on my plate, and I don't want it, I uh, I reach the bottom of hell is, is the best way to put it. And she then gave me instructions to relate to the allergy of the body, very clear-cut uh, instructions, and then I proceeded to obtain the instructions from this book starting in the beginning as we are now that is teaching me, and I'm so grateful for the people further on the road with more experiences under their belt for me because I can hear them speak. 
and they're dropping the pebbles of instructions for me a day at a time. I'm newly recovered, and i not shaky, but not confident on my own <laughs> self that um, this book, these sentences we're reading, the what is being shared by um, the recovered compulsive overeaters here, for me, is means everything in the world. So with that, I'll pass, Janice. Thank you, Rose. Well, let's move on to the next paragraph. And do will you read that for us? Good morning. This is Do, recovering compulsive overeater. Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of Akron City Hospital. The very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. He had never had another drink. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartwarming success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. And I'm going to focus in on their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. He never had another drink. And the word that I'm focusing on is desperate one. It's a great, great place to be, believe it or not. To be desperate um, means that you're hopeless, you're extremely um, violent, out of control. And what I see is that pain is the greatest motivator to effectuate change. And that's what happened to this alcoholic number three. Um, Bill Dawson, which you'll find on page 182 in the back of the stories, um, it talks about how he was hospitalized about eight times, and his his condition seemed hopeless because he kept coming into the hospital, looking to these highly competent um, doctors, um, seeking help to be relieved from his alcoholism, and no one could help him. Um, as a matter of fact, during that time, they would um, hospitalize you, institutionalize you, lock you up, give you, um, you know, <laughs> treatments like shock therapy um, and and just other treatments that they would have, um, sedation pills, but nothing would effectuate a change until these two, um, uh, Bill and Dr. Bob, approached him. And they had a specific message, a specific solution. They basically laid out the grave nature of his illness and, you know, told him that his illness was progressive disease and that he had an allergy of of the body and obsession of the mind and that he had to have a spiritual awakening uh, to be recovered from his alcoholism. And that was based on the program of action of course, so that the obsession would be driven out, expelled, and removed. Um, You know, on page 18, it talks about how no one can effectuate a change like another alcoholic could with one another. Um, It says on page 18, highly competent psychiatrists, which, (laughs) you know, they're they're very, um, they're professionals. They're very skilled people. And yet, it says, 
who have dealt with us have found that sometimes impossible to persuade another alcoholic to discuss this situation without reserve. And then it talks about the family. It says, strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than the psychiatrists and doctors. But notice, notice what it says next. But the ex-problem drinker, the recovered person who has found the solution, who is probably armed with facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another in a few hours. And 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 I I like that because in our reading it says that this alcoholic number three recovered immediately. And it says that, you know, that we can we can win the entire confidence of another in just a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And I'll just read this last paragraph. It says that the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty um, that he obviously knows what he is talking about. So this is identification, identification, identification. That his whole department shouts at the new prospect, and this is the ill person, that he is a man with a real answer, that they have the solution, that he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatsoever except the sincere desire to be helpful and that there are no no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to endure. These are all the conditions we have found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. You know, and to walk again is to be free, to be free. And that's what this man did. He walked up. He got out of that hospital, and he was able to walk a free man and pass on the same message yet to another alcoholic. And um, and the work just kept going and going. And it's just so beautiful to see that we have hope today that that being desperate does not mean that it's all lost or that it's a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. You know, it produces change. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Drew. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Yes, this is Amy. Go ahead. Uh, Janice, did you, it's Christy. Did you want, uh, who do you want to go ahead? I think there's a couple of us. It's Amy. Oh, Amy first and then Christy. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks. My name's Amy. I'm a compulsive reader from Maryland, almost frantically. So why did these men go about this frantically? Now, we obviously have been talking about this, you know, in the last sentence of the last paragraph. They believed that it was vital to their permanent recovery. Well, Tradition 5 is the tradition that we read when we do this meeting. It's that our primary purpose is to carry the message to the still-suffering compulsive overeater. I mean, why why do we do this? We do it, we don't do it just to because it's something nice to do and we want to just be really nice about it. We believe firmly and strongly very much that this carries a message of depth and weight that not only can save lives but continues to be vital to our own permanent recovery. I mean, if we go to Tradition 5, the paragraph here says, it is the great paradox of AA that we know we can seldom keep the precious gift of sobriety unless we give it away. If a group of doctors possessed a cancer cure, They might be conscience-stricken if they failed their mission through self-seeking. Yet such a failure wouldn't jeopardize their personal survival. For us, if we neglect those who are still sick, there is an unremitting danger to our own lives and sanity. 
Under these compulsions, compulsions of self-preservation, duty, and love, it is not strange that our society has concluded that it has but one high mission, to carry the AA message to those who don't know there's a way out. I think we really need to smash home the fact here that if we don't carry the message, if we don't frantically serve others, then our permanent recovery is not going to happen. That this is the great paradox of the program, that in order to keep it, we have to give it away. We have to carry the message. There are all the wonderful things that happen, a wonderful fellowship that grows up about us and did so with AA, but there is that grounding foundational factor, is that in order to stay sober and abstinent ourselves and spiritually fit, we need to be working and carrying the message in the OA rooms. We need to be carrying the big books there. We need to be, we need to be bringing the message that these men started into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. We need to be working that message in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous for our own sake as well as the sake of Overeaters Anonymous. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Amy. Go ahead, Christy. Hi, good morning, Janice. Thank you. Good morning, a vision for you. This is Christy, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I love the the reference here to uh, Dr. Bob and Bill W. Um, you know, working frantically uh, to you know upon the alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. And their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. And you know, I just want to jump real quickly to AA number three, Alcoholics Anonymous number three, and um, on page 186. When they walked in, they said, uh, you know, do you want to quit drinking? I mean, that was the question. Do you want to quit drinking? You know, our only requirement for membership is a desire to stop. Do you want to stop? It's none of our business about your drinking. We're not up here trying to take any of your rights or privileges away from you, but we have a program whereby we think you can stay sober. Part of that program is that we take it to someone else who needs it and wants it. If you don't want it, we'll not take up your time and we'll be going and looking for someone else. You know, the question was, you know, the answer to that question was up to Bill D. You know, do you want to stop? Do you want to stop? If you do, we will do anything for you. If not, we'll move on to the next, you know, the next hospital bed in this case. And um, for me, you know, when I walked in, when I darkened the doors, you know, having been in OA, you know, from 1994 to 2001, not finding, I mean, you know, going, I mean, gaining, losing and gaining, I mean, I gained 100 pounds in the rooms. And, um, you know, it wasn't working for me. It was not working for me. And when I came in, that was basically what I was presented with. The, that question, do you want to stop? Do you want to stop? People didn't say, here's what you've got to do. You've got to stop. Not people in the rooms. No one in the room said that to me. And people in the rooms did not say things like, um, you've got to find God. You've got to find a spiritual solution here, Christy. That's what you have to do. What people said is, I don't know about your disease. I don't know about your disease, but let me tell you about my disease. Let me tell you about what happened to me. Let me tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Here's what I have learned about my disease. It's a twofold disease, mind, body. It was pretty simple. It was pretty simple. And when, you know, when I was presented with what my disease really was and that this program put into action could solve that problem, 
solve that problem, that I could be recovered, not cured, but I could be recovered. I could grow away from ever wanting to take that first compulsive bite, which was incomprehensible to me. You know, that's what I wanted. At 300 pounds when I walked in, I just wanted to be sane. I didn't even care about losing weight because that was incomprehensible to me, that it would even happen that I would lose weight. I couldn't picture myself thin. The pictures on my refrigerator showing, you know, thin people to inspire me did not work anymore. Nothing worked anymore. And you know what? I got to the point where I said, I want to stop, even, even if it means I give up my supposed control, even if I give up what I'm going to eat for the day. You know, I don't, I, what I'm doing isn't working. My best thinking got me to this place. You know, in the depths of insanity and 300 pounds, which wasn't my top weight. There was no end in sight. And um, I'm just so grateful that I got to that place and I heard a message of, of hope. I heard a message of hope from people in whom the problem had been solved. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Christy. Thank you very much. You know, there's just two things I'd like to, this is Janice and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. There's just two things I'd like to point out in these last two paragraphs that we read. The first one describing Dr. Bob and his transformation, it says he sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. And then in this paragraph, in this paragraph, he never had another drink. You know, so I don't know about you, but that in and of itself, Bill W., Bob Smith, and Bill Dawson, these first three, sobered up never to drink again. You know, that's what's possible. That's what's possible. That's the program of recovery you know, laid out for us so clearly. You know, I had, I had someone say to me the other day, you know, sometimes while I'm listening to the meeting on the phone, I feel like a bobblehead, she said. I'm nodding, nodding, nodding to myself, saying, yes, me too, yes, me too, yes, me too. Because that, that's what we're describing, you know, is we can identify in. We can say, yes, that was me too. But the, but the wonder of that is that we can also say, yes, that solution is mine as well. You know, what a beautiful thing. And with that, we'll close the meeting. Thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. And I'd like to ask Katie to read that for us. Okay. Am I unmuted? You are. You are, Katie. Okay. Thank you. It's Katie, a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. 
and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.